Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes break down Hobbs and Shaw and the new season of HBO Succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tosh Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. So great to have all of us here together to talk about Harlan County, USA and American Factory, two documentaries about labor relations and the difficult fight for unionization. Solidarity, am I right, team? Yeah, sorry, we're going on strike. Wait, what? We're family. The Film Spotting Podcast Network has been very supportive from the beginning, and our Patreon subscribers are very generous. It's not that. It's the working conditions. They're unsafe. Yeah, Rachel Handler has black lung. That's the real reason she left for the show. You made us tell listeners she moved to New York. If you think I'm going to compromise the audio quality of this show for safety reasons, forget it. That's the problem with unionization. If the company gives in, the product suffers. Scott, I, I don't see why we have to record at the bottom of this mine shaft. It's really dark down here. And the canary we brought down here died weeks ago. There are dozens of podcasters I could replace you all with, and nobody would know the difference. But my trenchant insight. Yes, where would we be without Keith's trenchant insight? And Tasha's contrarian streak. Not to mention my production and doing all of the things skills. Who put you in charge anyway? Well, it would appear that union busting is not my strong suit. But do you think you guys could stay on for another couple of weeks to complete this podcast pairing? It's a good one. Tasha, what are we talking about? In her mid-twenties, director Barbara Koppel had discovered a twin passion for activism and filmmaking, participating in anti-war protests as a college student, and learning her trade alongside documentary legends Albert and David Maisels on classics like Salesman and Give Me Shelter. In 1972, she heard about a community of coal miners in Harlan County, Kentucky, who were striking for union recognition from a company that was hostile to their efforts, to put it mildly. Four years later, Koppel emerged with Harlan County, USA, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary and has since become the gold standard for nonfiction films about labor relations. The new documentary, American Factory, is funnier than Harlan County and not nearly as fraught with violence, but many of the core tensions between workers and their corporate bosses remain the same. Set in a former GM factory in Dayton that's been taken over by a Chinese glass company named Fuyao, the film is about a clash between cultures on issues like salaries, safety conditions, and workers' rights. On today's show, we'll dig into the grit and grime of Harlan County, USA, and the perseverance of workers who held out for 13 months in an atmosphere of poverty and violence. Then next week, we'll bring in American Factory and talk about what has and hasn't changed for the working stiff. Which side are you on, Scott? Which side are you on? You got a beautiful voice, Tasha. Oh, I think. So does that mean I'm getting a bonus in my paycheck this week? <laughs> nope. Dang it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. Harlan, Kentucky is cold country, where men work long hours for short wages, where poverty, black lung, and needless disaster are facts of life. In 1973, the men voted to join the United Mine Workers Union. The company refused to sign the contract, and so began the battle of Harlan County, USA. Which side are you on? Without organization, you're a lone individual, without influence, and without recognition of any kind. They're treating us like that. We're animals, dogs. Well, we aren't. We're American citizens. In 1954, writer Michael Wilson, director Herbert J. Bieberman, and producer Paul Jericho released a movie called Salt of the Earth, an extraordinary anomaly in the history of American movies. Wilson, Bieberman, and Jericho were all blacklisted from Hollywood due to their alleged communist leanings, but that didn't stop them from making an independent film at a time when there was no independent film scene. Salt of the Earth is a black-and-white drama about a long and difficult miner strike at the Empire Zinc Company in Grant County, New Mexico, and it has a sharp political bent. Taking their cues from the Italian neorealist movement, the filmmakers cast actual miners in their families as actors, which may lead to some stilted performances, but the trade-off in authenticity is worth it. But what's especially fascinating about Salt of the Earth is the focus on women as the backbone of the labor movement. Without their organization and steadfastness on the picket line, the strike was doomed to failure. I was thinking of Salt of the Earth when revisiting Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA for this podcast, because their focus is the same. Both are films about men on strike, but both are more interested in the women, who may not be inhaling coal or zinc dust every day, but who are powerful stakeholders in their family's futures. The difference is that there's a woman behind the camera this time, too. Barbara Koppel produced and directed the film, and stretched a $12,000 loan into a $20,000 16mm project that took four years to finish. There's no doubt that the presence of a film crew helped end the strike after 13 months, if only for bearing witness to violence and bloodshed that might otherwise have been quietly mopped up. But Koppel and her crew were fearless in immersing themselves in the lives of poor Appalachians, and her subjects, in turn, grew to trust her and bring her inside the movement for the long haul. In one of the most famous scenes in documentary history, we witness Koppel and her crew get attacked by violent scabs who work to bust up the picket line. Koppel would later say she was unhurt because her Niagara recording case was taking the brunt of the blows. But we see guns cocked on both sides many times in Harlan County, USA, and the atmosphere is thick with the potential for violence. No doubt political and creative conviction is holding Koppel and her team in place, but it may also be a case where the camera itself provides a false sense of security. If it's only a movie, the danger can't be real, can it? In broad strokes, Harlan County, USA is about miners at Brookside Mine who wanted better pay and working conditions from the Duke Power Company. Life for local coal miners has always been difficult, with many deaths from black lung and pervasive poverty ravishing the area. As the strike drags on, the company brings in gun-toting strike breakers to bust up the picket line, including the fearsome Basil Collins, a snarling scab who waves his pistol around and threatens everyone in sight, including Koppel. But perhaps the most mesmerizing figure in the documentary is Lois Scott, the outspoken leader of a group of miners' wives who end up stepping out to the forefront of the movement. At one point, Scott yanks out a handgun she has tucked in her brassiere. Working from the Maisel School of Direct Cinema, Koppel isn't inclined to use talking heads or titles to give information, and she doesn't much care to put together a comprehensive TikTok of what happened when. Her instinct is to evoke the area and its unforgettable faces as strongly as possible, 
and capture the beating heart of the labor movement in Appalachia. She winds up discovering it in Lois Scott and other women who are holding their families together and keeping the picket line populated for as long as it takes to get a contract. This is a life-or-death situation for them, and in Harlan County, USA, it's clear that it could go either way. All the police were lined up there when we got there. It was early. We must have got there at quarter after five, maybe 5.30, but they were there already. And by that time, all this big crowd had gathered, you know, supporters. One car went through with three men in it. They kind of slipped through. And uh, the next car that come through, we were able to get in the road and lay down. Come on, guys, lay down, lay down. Lay down. Let them see what kind of law we got in Harlan County. What kind of state police we got? Get them bastards we That's what to do. Is this the first time all of you have seen this film? Yeah, it was a big one for me to, to not have seen before, and I'm, I'm glad to have a reason to, to watch it. Beyond, I actually obviously. have seen this one before. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. you're the one I didn't talk to, and I made I made a terrible assumption. <laughs> well, I actually saw it in college in a journalism course. Funnily enough, I believe it was the same course uh, in the same unit where we watched Roger and Me, which we also discussed on, on this podcast. So uh, that class is really uh, paying dividends as far as uh, this podcast goes mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to documentary. But, uh, but yeah, I, I hadn't revisited it since then. And it's definitely uh, takes on different contexts uh, when viewed outside of a classroom setting. And it was a first time for me as well. Yeah. So what do you what do you think, Tasha? Um, I'm going to start with the negative because there's much, much less of it. Uh, and I don't want to gloss over it. But I also don't want to end on a negative um, when there's so much positive to say about this film. I did find it a little disorganized, like a little chopped together. And I found myself periodically stopping the film and consulting the Internet to figure out what the history was. Because there were times where I had trouble keeping some of the figures straight, particularly like when things get political, when uh, you know people start going to jail. There was a lot going on in the history there that isn't covered here and it really helps to have a couple of comprehensive websites um, that you can consult like oh why is this man suddenly going to jail why is this man suddenly being carried up the courthouse steps in a wheelchair why is he going to jail when he was already in jail like there's just there's a lot there Mm. um so yeah i did actually wish for those uh those titles and and placards and timelines and explanations that you point out uh couple doesn't have in there and it wasn't really necessarily in keeping with documentary at the time or with direct cinema at all um but there were points where (laughs) i just i was really confused as to what was going on now the upside is that this film is so raw and the intimacy of it, the access of it is so startling. Like just the things that she captures on film, um, whether it's, you know, minors like explosively blowing up at each other and accusing each other of like lying down on the job instead of like holding up there into protesting or like the outright fights between the scabs, the strike breakers and the, the protesters. <laughs> this was a very uncomfortable film to watch, you know, in the good way in the in the way of, oh, wow, I I can't believe they were standing in the middle of that with a camera. Yeah. Uh, I found the the style a virtue for most of it, though. I like the immersiveness of it. And I actually liked the whole sequence where W.A. Tony Boyle is arrested for killing his rival. That cut, the arrogance of him when he's mm-hmm. being arrested and, and put away to the cut two years later to <laughs> You know, being, I don't want to mark anyone's infirmity, but but like just this broken man, like just being carried in, uh, like whatever's happened those two years is, has, has like, you know, taken all the arrogance out of him. Well, and I, and, and I feel like that cut implies that maybe it was a, a put on for sympathy when he sure. was, you know, may, maybe not, but that's what the contrast of that cut. 
that uh, made me think of. Why would you think he would be doing anything dishonest, though, Jenny? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I loved being in the middle of the action. And you're not wrong. It can be a little confusing at times, but I, I think it ultimately paid off just for the sense of being right there as history happens. In terms of style, what really stuck out to me this time, because I didn't really have too much trouble with the organization of it, and that may just be because I had experienced this film before and had the context of the history of unions it was you know presenting here truncated as as it is but uh what really stuck out to me stylistically on this viewing is the the use of songs the the protest songs that are they're really omnipresent in in this movie like it it seems like almost every scene ha- you know is accompanied by a, a different protest song or a, a version thereof or a song about how horrible mining is so that really struck me this time just in terms of creating just the milieu of this movie i I guess you know like it's not a part of the the narrative it's crafting or the point it's making but i think it's a a really big part of the mood it's setting and how it's priming you to uh to take in what you're seeing i one of my favorite cuts in the entire film is just that moment towards the beginning where you're hearing this scratchy voice singing this song about coal mining and it sounds like Mm -hmm. it it's just a very standard uh, documentarian trick it's a very ken burns kind of thing like oh you're you're hearing this very traditional song being sung and then you cut you realize you're actually listening to the man singing it and that happens at several points uh, throughout the film but but that first cut you just you can't beat it like the uh that would i believe that's david morris um singing the song and at that point i think you've already heard from him once kind of talking about his history with coal mines and it just it makes the moment so intimate and electric and throughout the film as you keep going from that same sort of sense of uh you know here are here are background songs the background of the entire movie is protest folk but then you keep like being intimately in the room with the people who created these songs and are singing them i think there's a trade-off in the movie to kind of go back to your complaint about it tasha is between having that intimacy and having that sense of immediacy and, and sense of now and sacrificing a lot of things that went, might give it more coherence and also context. I mean, if you're talking about these songs, I mean, you could probably dig into the history of these families, the history of this area, where the origin of songs like that. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do to give this story more context, but she doesn't really do that. The point of view of this film is so much on the front lines, and it's also very solidly on board with the protesters. I mean, this is not a film that is trying to give you a any kind of whatever, a balanced sense of where people are on both sides of this debate. She immerses herself, she and her crew, with the strikers, and um, that's the view you get, and I think it makes the film uh, more powerful. I mean, I don't think that's a weakness at all on the part of the film, but it is a choice. I mean, these are all strong choices that I think she's making as a, a director, and they pay off. I think the other thing, too, about maybe some sense of incompleteness or missing pieces is just you know the fact that they're that they're burning through 16 millimeter footage and they're having to make choices about when they when they can roll the camera and you kind of get what you get i mean that's pretty true of a lot of direct cinemas that you is that you get what you get and you put it together and there might be some gaps in there but you kind of get something essential i think where that sense really came through for me was kind of deep into the movie where they're talking about you know people not showing up on the picket anymore you know and you realize we're a year or whatever into the strike but we've only seen footage of a a handful of of picket lines and that's a result of what what you're talking about scott about having to to choose you know what what to show 
We don't get to see all of those picket lines, but we are still reoriented where we are in this strike in other ways later in the film. Yeah, and it's not a film where you necessarily want to talk about the beauty of, of the visuals, but there's some really striking image in this as well. I mean, uh, you know, not that she really had much choice but to shoot on 16 millimeter, but but the grainy stock against the you know the sunrise in the morning and just just really lovely looking stuff and 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 atmospheric as well. But I, I, the the other point to circle back a little bit though, when you do get statistics, I mean, it definitely is a film that's firmly on one side here. But when you do get statistics, it is very much to point out the difficulty of finding another side, which is the sort of like 180% profits, 4% raise, mm-hmm. 7% cost of living increase during that time. And just the the living conditions are, are just profoundly disturbing. They're just, you know, the, the this is the 1970s and it looks like something out of the 19th century. Uh, hmm. You know, no running water and just, you know, kind of d- debris everywhere, kids running around, you know. And not just the living conditions, but the working conditions. I mean, there's that opening, it might be the actual opening shot where the miners are uh, going down like what looks like a, a slide, like what looks belt. like the kind of conveyor yeah. belt that you'd use to uh, deliver logs into the water at a, a a mill. And I had a moment of like, oh, is this like like a fun little moment where they're sort of playing around with the equipment? And it's like, and the, then the camera follows them in the mine. And you realize, no, this is a delivery system for human beings, like traveling through a space that is too small for human beings. And it's it's oppressive and claustrophobic and sickening. And then Koppel over and over just kind of captures these grimy men like working in these horrible tight spaces where there's just like wet, cold byproducts spraying everywhere. My grandfather, uh, my paternal grandfather was a Oklahoma oil man. And I remember viscerally like as a child going down to the oil fields to pick him up and like the air just tasted like particleized oil. Mm. Um, There was just like a sense of it hanging in the air and hanging on your skin and like being breathed into your lungs. And I started to have flashbacks. Like every time we were down in the mine, I could taste what that mine must have been like. I mean, it's horrifying and it's uh, amazing how she captures it. And some of the light contrasts in particular of uh, like the silhouettes of men moving around in the darkness are just really striking. Yeah, that is as masterful, I think. I mean, it's so important to setting up the movie by having you take that journey and go on that conveyor belt that again yeah can't possibly be made for humans can it it's that maybe as a delivery system for the actual coal to go up and down from the mine but to see these men flat on their stomachs getting shuttled down into the darkness is really something and then of course you know we hear some uh, chatter about this person died of black lung and this person had black i mean this is that's what you that's what you get i mean it's not like there's some great safety standards and and the other thing too about it is like you get a sense again a sense because it doesn't provide historical context of decade after decade of labor battles lost of the company having the upper hand for so much longer than it might in a different area if you're you know if you you think about union workers in you know that time the union was pretty strong so so you think about union workers in major cities they can expect salary and benefits and things like that that are far greater than what they're ending up with in coal country here so um that really stands out for me what what do you uh, genevieve before we get away from the footage of the miners in the mine i just wanted to bring up from the uh the making of documentary that's on the criterion edition of the film one of the cinematographers i can't remember uh, which one but he he talked about 
getting that footage toward the end of filming, like once they were putting it together and, and someone was like, there's no actual footage of, of miners mining in the, in this thing, you know? Um, and I, I believe it was, it was all filmed like at a different mine. It was more intended as sort of not quite stock footage. It was wrapping. It wasn't, you know, part of the, the narrative of this film. So it falls under the realm of a, of a style thing. It's the right choice though. I think. Uh, oh, it, for it, sure. You need it. Yeah. To go on. And, and as already mentioned, it, it looks great. But to what you were talking about, Scott, uh, you know, with unions being pretty popular at this point in, in different industries, one of the standout scenes of the movie for me is when they go to Wall Street and one of the miners is talking to a cop, you know, and, and just telling the cop about kind of why they're there. And it's such a, a great interaction that, again, going off of that uh, making of documentary, they really kind of lucked into just by making sure that guy was was Mike at the right time. But that conversation almost goes like point by point down the list of grievances, you know, of, uh, oh, you work in a tunnel? Yeah, well, at least it's not 42 inches tall, <laughs> you know, or you're <laughs> like, you got benefits? No, no benefits. Dental? No, no, no dental, you know, and sort of this almost point by point comparison of what a police officer uh, in New York, who I'm assuming is part of the police officers union, has come to see as the norm versus what these miners are fighting for. Tired 30s. I, I like the part where he's like, is your job hard? Yeah, a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, like the, the, the retiring at thirty six thing. Boy, I right. I, you know, I I took the wrong. I chose the wrong profession. <laughs> yeah, you should have been a New York City cop in nineteen seventy eight. I think of, think of the facial hair I could have grown, and people would have thought it would look cool. <laughs> the thing is, uh, that that sequence is so fascinating, just for its its little like cross culture clash, meeting of the minds kind of thing. But it's the kind of context that I wish that the film had more of. I just I feel like things like the uh, Yablonski murders, like an entire family murdered over a union dispute, over a dispute over who should lead the union and under what circumstances and how beholden they should be to the mine leadership. It just kind of like blurs past as an idea. Uh, Boyle's conviction kind of like blurs past. And like, I wouldn't have understood at all what was going on there if I hadn't read up on it. They mentioned the 30s in passing. Like Hazel Dickens like talks about, you know, the trouble they had in the 30s and the circumstances under which a lot of these songs were written. But again, it just kind of like blurs by without context. There's so many teases of a much larger story here. And I mean, today we've got the internet, we can create our own contextualization, or we can buy the criterion disc and get the contextualization <laughs> there. Uh, but like as a standalone film, they're just places where I wish there was more of this kind of stepping back a little and uh, like getting a more of a sense of the larger story. Yeah, I kind of take it as, like I said, choices of just having certain limitations that are either budgetary or self-imposed in terms of the way Cavill's conceptualize the movie and the other stuff just has to kind of fall by the wayside and you kind of just get the gist of things a little bit. But the gist of things is pretty powerful. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, and, and was mentioned in the keynote was just how important a role that women play in Harlan County, USA, both behind and in front of the camera. What, what, what do you see as sort of the impact of all that? I found it just fascinating. I mean, the fact that they're so self-aware about their roles and that they bring them up and talk about them, I think is just in and of itself fascinating. The fact that the men, some of the men actually sort of talk about how they're letting the women do all the work and they feel kind of sheepish about hiding behind them. It feels like 
there's there's just that scene where the the car is blocking the street and the huge confrontation is going on around it. And you spend so much time with that knot of women out in front of it, jeering and singing and uh, and chanting and just like confronting the sheriff, like leading that protest. The scenes of them like arguing in meetings and again, like taking a, a leadership role. I have to think that's got to be fascinating for people, especially watching it in the mid 70s amid the burgeoning women's lib movement, just mm-hmm. seeing how profoundly involved they are and how profoundly hard they're pushing for their families. Like this is a very traditional like method of being a woman. They're taking care of their households. They're taking care of their children. They're taking care of their men, but they're doing all of it by pushing for a better life for all of them and better working conditions for all of them. And I I just, I thought it was really fascinating. I can't help but wonder if Koppel as a woman either had more access to them in a more intimate way or was more interested by them in an intimate way. Like if, if any of that focus, yeah, if any of that focus comes out of her gender or if it was just inevitable, inescapable, because that was the dynamic going on. It sounds like it was a, a little bit of both in that making of Lois Scott's daughter, who is, is also in the film, but she is, um, you know, uh, interviewed in the present day about the film and kind of talks about her her mother's relationship with Koppel. And uh, apparently Lois just loved Barbara, you know, like, like, um, like, I guess there was sort of a early who's this young girl sniffing around, you know, suspicion, but there was sort of a uh, sounds like a good natured confrontation. And after that, Lois recognized what Barbara Koppel's presence what all of these filmmakers presence brought to the fight that they were fighting and as you kind of lay out in the opening there scott that it was you know it to an extent it you know made the filmmakers a target but arguably it provided more protection having the cameras there and from what we see of lois smith i think it's reasonable to assume that she was canny enough to perhaps realize that and willingly participated in in this film in a in a way that comes through in the not just her character but the the access that Koppel and her her filmmakers are are granted kind of across the board but especially in the women's meetings yeah and i think uh, you know one, one thing i mean the, i mean the film can only capture so much at its running time but i mean this this strike went on for 13 months and if you consider what the conditions for these families are under the best of circumstances where they're gainfully employed and earning their paychecks and going about their daily lives. I mean, that you know, that's a, clearly a paycheck-to-paycheck situation that they're dealing with. And so to go on strike for 13 months and a half to survive that takes a lot of strength and perseverance. And it was so exciting to see Lois Scott and to see other women in the in this meeting just continue to kind of bring the fire uh you know, throughout the process, because there are many points where I think the strike just could have collapsed. I mean, there's the practicalities of it are just immense to consider. So that that was that's exciting. And there was that moment I can't remember who the character is who says it, but it's in that meeting with with the women where where she's like doesn't care about anything but that contract. <laughs> like getting that contract more than her husband, more than anything, is like yeah, the most w- important thing. Watching like the the, the meeting devolve into infighting and and just people yeah. bringing in personal issues, and and she's just drawing a line in the sand about all that. Uh, you know, it's fantastically uh, powerful. Yeah, Sudi Krusenberry. She was. I mean, Lois Scott is definitely sort of the the standout of the the women organizers, but. Uh, 
in that scene in particular, Sudi makes a leaves her mark on the film. Okay, so we've talked about Lois Scott. I mean, are there any standout moments or characters for you? I was pretty taken with uh, Florence Reese standing up and and talking about how this all happened before. How like again, they we don't really get much of the uh, the Harlan County War and the Union disputes of the 1930s, but she references in them in passing, and it's just kind of a we're not going back. You know, here are the songs that I wrote. And then she she disses her own voice and then sings. And it's just it's kind of a fearless moment. But it's also just a reminder that all of these things are cyclical, you know, that certain wars get fought over and over and over and that you basically you can't stop fighting if you want to win. And it's just to me, it, it was just such a striking generational moment like this very fragile seeming old lady just kind of getting up and saying we've done all of this before and we're going to do it again and we're going to win and then singing about it i i just found that very emotional yeah that was something too it's like yeah. do we hear the song or that song <laughs> in in the in, to see her in the flesh that you know, just i just think of that as just that and a labor movement just going hand in hand but it arose from specific circumstances from a specific person writing and singing it that was uh that was pretty extraordinary uh, i um you know obviously the big confrontation of course is a standout moment when chaos is basically er- erupting and and uh you know, you, you see these these what they call gun thugs, uh, these people kind of intimidating and kind of circling around, and you, you got to wonder how much of it is just a bluff, and then you realize no, it's not. I mean, you know, a man is killed over the course of this film, and then the violence that that erupts there is is very real. I mean, this is someone who is not hired just because he's an intimidating fellow. And if you put him in a, in a narrative film, I think he'd almost be he'd almost be too much of a stereotype to actually have play that part. You're talking about Basil Collins, right? right yeah, here. Basil Collins, the leader of the yep. of the gun thugs that, that we see on screen, and he, um, you know, he's not just hired because for his looks or because he can snarl and be intimidating. <laughs> he's 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 there because he's a tool of violence. And this is, you know, when you get down to it, I mean, you you this is an exploitative system that will literally kill people to keep the machines rolling and to keep the profits at a level that they currently are. It is, uh, it's chilling stuff to see it in action. Yeah. Uh, there's a earlier decidedly less violent confrontation, uh, involving Basil that still sticks with me. And that's the point where he comes over in, in his truck to mm-hmm. the, the, the filmmakers and, you know, is asking to see their press pass, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's Barbara Koppel, uh, speaking from, from behind the camera in that moment, but just, it's a very illuminating moment for Basil, but it's also like a really Ill- illuminating moment for the filmmaker, you know, and seeing how, she handles this confrontation so well, you know, and deflects this not so passive aggressive threat that's coming at her in the form of this guy who, and again, I'm going to cite that making of documentary, which can you tell I I watched shortly before (laughs) recording this. Um, But Koppel says in that, that he was spinning a gun on the seat of the the truck out of frame of the camera, but he was obviously threatening her with a a smile on his face and, you know, a a certain put on politeness but um it really underlines both the danger of that character and the and the bravery of Koppel in the face of it i didn't quite follow what happened with uh williams the harlan county sheriff when the the protesters were handing him an arrest warrant yeah 
Why did they have an arrest warrant? I was unclear on that too. And there's a fee to be paid before, before it could be processed and he'd actually perform it. But I mean, because that was an amazing moment where mm-hmm. he, like, yeah. I couldn't, I, I went back and listened to it several times and I couldn't quite get the audio. I assumed he was saying something to the effect of, like, you don't pay my salary or like there's the, the filing fee hasn't happened, but you can't file a, an arrest warrant for somebody else by paying a fee. Regardless, the fact that he was, he says something about money and they just start producing it and throwing it at him. And the, mm-hmm. like the, the open contempt of, mm-hmm. you know, do your job. You're doing the part of your job that persecutes us. You're not doing the part of your job that supports us. If we have to pay you to do your job, we'll do it by throwing small change at you and he's got like a certain dignity and a certain he's relatively he He just seemed like a tool to me oh i thought he did uh, certainly compared to uh a lot of the the other like the gun thugs basically sure well like he he comes across well true he comes across as uh somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be in the middle of all of this but is at least trying to listen yeah. to both sides. Mm-hmm. And which side are you on was definitely a question I was thinking about <laughs> when uh, dealing with that sheriff. I mean, I think they, they, they sort of cleverly put him in a position where he has to execute that warrant. It's like you have the warrant and look look over there. There's the guy. Go do, go, go do what you're supposed to do. That's another angle that the film could have followed up on and didn't, which is, which is that where do the authorities stand? Because I think that ends up being a pretty crucial question in labor disputes like this because I, I think that it can often not be with protection protecting the working person and it can be about protecting the interest in the property of the company. And so I think, he, I think at the very least you're seeing him a little conflicted about that role, which is um, fascinating, kind of something I, I wish I had seen more of. But that was going to be the, going to be the moment that sort of stood out for me that you mentioned that the execution of that warrant is very interesting. Um, and just, you know, I mean, then, then the bit where Basil Collins, you know, they get a shot of him just pointing the gun at the camera. I mean, that, that That's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty stunning, too. But um, the film- and then realizing it's the camera and, and like putting it away real quick, it's such a a great glimpse yeah i mean he is a very frightening character and i mean i think you can feel that characters like that have always existed and will always exist just truly malevolent truly on the side of wrong in the film it's just just the fact that everybody has guns and those safeties come off and and um there's that tension around the picket line i mean it's just that's just i mean that that's an incredible thing for the movie to capture and kind of a critical thing for the f- filmmakers to even be around to, to capture it because I think that, you know, like um, coal mining itself, that a lot of stuff happens in the dark in situations like this. If you don't have a press, if you don't have cameras there, then all kinds of things can be swept under the rug and, and maybe this strike does not resolve itself. Yeah, and one of the most fascinating things about that, I think, is the number of people who said that Koppel's presence there, uh, her crew being there with a camera, diffused a lot of situations, like actually helped the violence not get worse than it was. And some of the violence that you see is already pretty bad. The idea that she, without meaning to and without actively shaping this story, uh, still shaped the story just with her presence, with the idea that all of this was being was being viewed and recorded with the idea that the world would be watching is not only a powerful thing in the moment watching this film, 
But it's a reminder of how much activism today happens around people videoing things that are going on and, and putting them on the internet and sharing them with people. The degree to which uh, filming police activity helps both curtail some of the worst police overreaches and make sure that people actually know about them. The sequence in this film where scabs are, are driving their cars through groups of protesters mm-hmm. reminded me so much of what just happened in Rhode Island at the prison with a group of Jewish uh, protesters protesting ICE and the, uh, the corrections officer who drove a pickup truck into them it just it looked almost identical mm-hmm. and so again other hair yeah exactly and again it's a reminder that you you fight the same fights over and over and apparently as of the 1970s we started fighting them with the same tools you know cinema and shining a light on things that were going on and bringing them to a larger world one kind of last point i wanted to make that kind of got me thinking was that one of the first things you kind of learn about documentary which is supposed to be you know about truth is that they have perspectives documentaries do and documentary filmmakers are, are participants they're collaborators with their subjects i mean there, there's a and i think that really comes through so strongly in harlan county usa which has a point of view and which does which is a situation where Koppel and her crew immersed themselves in this community and became a part of it in a way that kind of defies this notion of journalistic distance and and i think if you can kind of just get past that idea that that sort of thing is even important um, you can kind of embrace, uh, you know, the artistry on display and embrace the kind of collaboration and participation that's being done by the filmmaker. It's close to impossible. I mean, short of uh, like hidden micro cameras, which, you know, you can get these days, like the people running the cameras have a physical presence. Yeah. You know, the director has a physical presence. It's very hard to be there and not in some way affect what's going on or at least experience yeah, it. And not to mention the way you cut a movie together, too. <laughs> what, you, what you decide to include in the movie also is revealing of a point of view. So it's important to keep in mind, I think. Well, that and, that and other ideas are going to come up quite a bit uh, next week when we dig into American Factory. But for now, we'll move on to feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our recent pairing on Fight Club and the Art of Self-Defense called to mind another movie about masculinity for listener Bennett. Tasha, want to read that for us? Of course. Bennett writes, Listening to your conversation about Tyler Durden's cult and Tyler's relationship to the narrator reminded me a lot of The Master. Durden and Lancaster Dodd both bring in large cults of damaged men who feel isolated from the world. Both cults allow these damaged people to find a sort of hollow escape from the pain in their lives. The central relationship in both movies see a charismatic, confident leader bring in a sad, sexually frustrated individual. They become great friends, but then changing ideologies, jealousy, and empty promises lead to their falling out. Both cults move in a direction away from their original purpose. Both the narrator and Freddie Quell become jealous of their mentor's relationships to others. Both protagonists eventually ditch their loyalty to their mentor. There are obvious differences as well. Fight Club is partially about toxic masculinity, while the cause is composed of men and women. Freddie is driven to the cause by PTSD from World War II and alcoholism, while the narrator in Fight Club is escaping boredom in the mundane. Project Mayhem's jump to annihilation is surely more drastic than Dodd's cult moves, and of course the film's styles are in complete contrast. The Master is a quiet drama, while Fight Club has some of the least subtle filmmaking I can think of. But I can't quite escape the similarities in characters and theme. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you think of about how um, the narrator and Tyler Durden are one and the same character. I mean, you also have that interesting 
mind meld kind of that takes place in the master between Lancaster, Dodd, and Freddie, right? I mean, these are characters who have a profound impact on each other's lives, can't really do without the other. I mean, the pairing becomes that intimate too, even though they're not, you know, the same person. I, I really like this comparison. I think it's really apt and it kind of calls to light some things about both movies, uh, just in how they're different. I feel like The Master, it's a much quieter relationship, but in part it's much quieter because both uh, Lancaster and Freddie are are kind of mentally damaged in similar ways that have caused them to kind of like withdraw inward, you know, in a way that the narrator kind of has, but uh, Tyler Durden is expressing everything outward in like a big, very big and loud way. And I think that strongly affects the the like the loud dynamic of the film, the, the more is more kind of dynamic of the film, whereas the master is, you know, very buttoned down and, and controlled and quiet except during a, a couple of like really explosive act out scenes. So I, I think that these movies do comment on each other in some really interesting ways. And now I kind of re- want to revisit the master. I, know, I think we need to find a way to the club. master on this show or, or <laughs> any, have we done a Paul Thomas Anderson yet? Uh, I, don't I don't know if we have. think have we? so. Oh, that's no. interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, maybe so. Well, things come up organically Wait. on this uh, podcast. Oh, we did Phantom Thread. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but was, we haven't, but we haven't one. done him as a, as a classic film yet. Right. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's, Getting, some of his older films are getting in that range. Of I was, uh, I was watching a little bit of Hard Eight the other night on uh, Pluto TV, my my <laughs> new favorite way to watch anything. You know, it's all, it's also uh, on like Amazon now, right? No, but it's just but yeah. But what I love about all right, this is a whole side trip. It's what I love about Pluto TV is you you can just stumble across things and they have the oddest things on there. But thank you for doing your part to get us that Pluto TV sponsorship. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm pretty sure that that was the film where I first really became aware of Philip Baker Hall, and it was it was one of those kind of like wake up and smell the actor that you've been seeing for so long mm-hmm. kind of moments where you end up just wanting to go back and like watch everything they've done yeah we're digressing but it sounds like there's plenty to do actually the point I wanted to make though is like yeah I was watching that and like John C. Riley is a little, <laughs> little bit younger <laughs> when he yeah. made that movie than he is now and Philip Seymour Hoffman is really interesting in that one too but yeah. what, one, one that last little point I w- wanted to make about the, that comparison between the master and fight club I and mean, he Bennett was talking about the differences between the movies uh in terms of how they're driven how Freddie's driven to the cause by a, a PTSD from World War II and the narrator is escaping boredom and mundane I just think about that there's always this craving on the part of of men for some sort of existential satisfaction, right? No matter no matter what the situation is, whether it's war or the lack thereof, you know, they, there's some in both cases. There's the same emptiness and the same need to attach themselves to some idea and find some kind of purpose. Um, so, you know, men is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> men, am I right? Men, am I right? Yep. We're not that great sometimes. So uh, the the end of August is a challenging time for new releases, though I kind of have affection for it. So we put out an alert on social media asking our listeners for pairings for movies we haven't covered on the show this year. As it turns out, we were able to find a fun end of summer pairing, which we'll announce next week. But we wanted to talk about some of the best pairing ideas we got because there were some great ones. What, what do we get? What do we get when we from casting out to our listeners? A lot, for, a lot of midsummer pairings. Yeah, people really uh, wanted us to talk about midsummer, uh, which I would point those people to our Patreon, where uh, Scott and Keith uh, did uh, discuss uh, midsummer on its own for our uh, subscribers there. But you know, I think what's interesting about all the midsummer suggestions, uh, setting aside the ones that suggest we pair with Wicker Man, which we have already 
done a pairing uh, with Wicker Man and the Witch uh, several years back. So feel free to go look that up. But um, aside from those, there was just a huge, huge swath of suggestions for what films we would pair with Midsummer, which to me suggests that there's not really like a, a really rock solid pairing there. But I, I haven't seen the film myself because I'm, I'm a wimp. We know this. Um, <laughs> you but, do okay. But, you do fine. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I'm curious to hear from those of you who have seen it if it uh, strikes you as sort of similarly idiosyncratic and unparable. Uh, in well, that what were some of the suggestions that you that it's, we got? It's idiosyncratic, but uh, the fact that there are so many movies that were suggested as pairings. Yeah. My my personal favorite was somebody we su- who suggested we uh, pair Midsummer with uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, which which I I, I was like what, and then I thought about it, like no that. That, that works. Okay, <laughs> so you, you have a bunch of outsiders coming into a, a very controlled situation, uh, being run by somebody with a very specific idea of how, how things should go, and then there's like a, an elimination process, and then uh, in the end, uh, Charlie gets to run the chocolate factory. I actually find the 70s uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory more disturbing than Midsummer, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's a pairing that I like to put under the heading of Finding Dory and Memento pairing. <laughs> <laughs> there's also... Uh, there's also the the role of music in both mm-hmm. of them. You sure. know, I uh, I tweeted out a uh, just a commentary on finding this pairing interesting, and somebody on Twitter immediately resp- responded with an Oompa Loompa song about Midsummer, <laughs> and the possibilities are endless. I I, I could have written an intro uh, insisting that all of you guys sing Oompa Loompa songs, <laughs> and we missed out on that. That was terrible. There's some really great pairings I wanted. To mention one was scary stories to tell in the dark with in the mouth of madness yeah i love in the mouth of madness and, and that'd be kind of fun yeah that, 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 i mean that the, that's the latest thing we can do from carpenter where things are really hold together i think right uh what do you i mean you there's say? a short the short answer is yes okay uh, <laughs> and uh so that that one that one i really liked the nightingale and uh walkabout yes. i think is a really solid pairing that i still don't, I haven't seen the night if there were if there were more weeks in the year we probably should have made time to try to pair nightingale my problem is that i saw it at sundance and it's it's very long and it's very harrowing it's not only a rape revenge movie but it's a movie about uh just systemic racist abuse and it's beautifully made it's uh it's really moving it will definitely make you feel for those characters but it's exhausting and the idea of revisiting again was a little more than I personally wanted to go through. I think she was offered to to make kind of big studio movies, and I kind of I seemed pretty badass to kind of go to kind of follow up the the Babadook with a movie that is, you know, at, reputedly anyway is is difficult and 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 for many off putting as the the Nightingale. So respect respect for that. Um, you know, I mean, it isn't. We were we were presented it at Sundance as though it was irreversible, you know, as though it was uh, uh, going to be a painful experience um, on a, a completely different level. And it is not that. Okay. It is not uh, exceptionally grueling in the way <laughs> the Babadook was perhaps uh, uh, exceptionally intense. And it's not groundbreaking. And like the, the Babadook was just something I hadn't seen before in terms of uh, parent-child relationships in a horror film. I think the Nightingale in a lot of ways is more conventional, but it's still it's just really well acted, really well shot and and really well made. So it's the kind of film that we definitely would have liked to uh, to recognize. Um, and it's certainly not like a, a torturous walk through hell or anything. 
um, it's it's a really good film. It's just a film I didn't necessarily want to watch again. We actually got a lot of suggestions for pairings with Her Smell, uh, mm. including Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, uh-huh. Opening Night, and A Woman Under the Influence. Mm. I mean, I haven't seen Her Smell yet. I, I, I want to see it and would love to, you know, pair it with one of those films, but alas. Um, but the one I really wanted to bring up, bring up that we got a few uh, suggestions for, and we actually tried really hard to make work on this podcast, was uh, Booksmart, which I'm, I'm really sad I haven't gotten a chance to talk about. On, on this podcast yet um and we just had trouble squaring a, a good pairing for that one <laughs> squaring a pairing because the perhaps the most obvious pairing which was suggested was that in super bad but we didn't want to do that for various reasons uh chief among them one of us does not really care for it and didn't want to revisit it i will allow um, myself on that <laughs> it's, yeah it's yeah, even that, more uh, grueling than the nightingale like the the gr- <laughs> The graphic, dramatic rapes throughout Superbad are just something wow. I never want to revisit again. I'm going to whisper something that that'll make you baby happy we didn't do it. I'm going to whisper it very quietly. Please don't throw anything at me. I didn't really care for Booksmart very much. Mm. Wow. <gasps> well, th- I'm still going to talk about the other suggestions we got, <laughs> uh, one of which I think I also floated uh, after seeing the film, which was Dazed and Confused. Um, but the suggestion we got, which uh, really kind of perked my ears up because it went in a direction I hadn't thought of, was pairing it with Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. Because I think when we were trying to think about pairing for Booksmart, we got really hung up on the last day of school party aspect. But pairing with Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, I think, would uh, have allowed us to look at Booksmart sort of through the lens of the the female like slacker comedy, uh, stoner comedy, whatever you want to call it. You know, and obviously those characters are far more ambitious than Romeo and Michelle uh, are in Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. But I think the dynamic between them and sort of the way the Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion plays with uh, fantasy and dream sequences sort of, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, puts it in the same comedic spirit as, as Booksmart. Um, plus, I just really love Romeo and Michelle and would have liked to ever visit that. Although we did do it at the Dissolve as a movie of the week as part of our buddy comedies month. And uh, we all wrote a little bit about Romeo and Michelle there, including a I wrote about it as a uh, sort of in the vein of a slacker comedy. So, you know, feel free to go look that up if that interests you. Those movies also both are kind of fundamentally about the way women deal with strain in really close, really long term relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those movies are about two besties looking at their school experiences and questioning how they experienced school and kind of trying to figure out what their lives are. So uh, yeah, I think that could have been an interesting pairing. Somebody suggested looking at Deadwood the movie and Star Trek the motion picture Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) because they were both cult TV shows that came back as movies. And I thought that was a really neat idea, but it would have required us to spend an hour talking about Star Trek the motion picture. (laughs) I think there's stuff to talk about there. Yeah, it's the watching it that would be difficult. The problem with me is that Deadwood is a show that looks like it's made for me that I would totally love and I have not watched it at all so to watch deadwood the movie would uh would not be uh, the most fun <laughs> well, you, you could you could have watched three seasons of uh dense I really uh, want to watch shakespearean television as, like, as background prep I, I would love to have nothing else to do but to watch three seasons of deadwood but uh it has not <laughs> happened yet in my life we uh, should also, before we wrap this, bring up the fact that we really wanted to talk about The Farewell, mm-hmm. and we came up with a pairing for it that we really liked, which was uh, 1998's Dogma 95 movie, The Celebration, by Thomas Vinterberg, which is another movie I believe we did, uh, a movie of the week mm-hmm. of at The Dissolve. One of our very first ones. Both yeah. of these movies being uh, really excellent movies about family secrets and withholding information um, and what happens when those secrets come 
come out in interesting ways. And The Farewell is a really terrific movie. Unfortunately, we got we got all lined up to do it. We got all excited about it. And then we found out the celebration is largely unavailable. That's horrifying. Because uh, that, that is that's like the one dogma film that I think really st- holds up, stands the test of time, something you really want to embrace, and it's uh, can't find it anywhere. So that's a bummer. Um, but uh, lots of really good suggestions. I mean, we like as I said, we did find a, a pairing that we liked for an end of the summer movie. But this was a good exercise, and I'm sure there will be points uh, later in the year, and certainly at the beginning of next year when, when in January and February. Things get really bad, so so we may be uh, hitting every hitting our listeners up again because they had some really good ideas that we, we didn't think of. Guys, hold or up. Just looking back at these uh, things that they've already suggested. A celebrations yeah. available on uh, DVD from Korea on eBay. So maybe <laughs> maybe that's a, is that accessible enough for, to just justify an episode? Drop everything. We've changed our plans. <laughs> also, we expect all of you to send away to Korea right now for a copy of this film. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll jump forward over four decades later and see how the labor movement has changed in the new Netflix documentary, American Factory. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, make sure the gun tucked into your undergarments has the safety on. We've been shot and we've been jailed, Lord. It's a sin. Women and little children stood right by the men. But we got that union contract that keeps the